We live in a world loaded with leaders. Some do the job well, some do it super well, some not so well. And so when you see someone who does it well, you remember it, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's a woman or a man, whether it's on a sports team or it's in the classroom, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in the neighborhood, whether it's a, a meeting amongst relatives, leadership surfaces when it's done well. Some stand out better than others. Some leaders do. There's something about them that really captures your imagination and you remember it because they've impacted you well. And so if I were to ask you to look back in your life or maybe right now in your life of leaders who lead well and you think about characteristics about them, you remember things about them. Some have an undeniable quality of leadership that catapults organizations, ministries, teams, businesses, homes, and takes people to places they've never thought they could go or where others tried and couldn't. And so there's this uncommon ability about some leaders that causes them to do things that other leaders tried in the same place, tried in the same ministry, and tried themselves, or tried in the same business, in the same home, and failed. Yet this person, this woman, this man, walks in with this uncommon characteristic and is able to lead in an uncommon way. For the majority of my life, I've been watching leaders. I've read 100-plus books on leadership. I love watching leaders lead. I, I take mental notes. Wow, they did that well. Wow, look how they did this. And, and so I, I put them into this, 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 this hard drive in my life, and then I try to apply them to my life. So I love watching leaders. I love watching organizations function. But quite frankly, there are just a few people that I can look back on in my life and say, that was just uncommon leadership. Just uncommon. There's you can't even wrap your mind around trying to, 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 to capture what they did. There's just this ability about them to do something in an uncommon way. We have uncommon leaders all around us. I recall the first time that we sent our team over to Asia to visit in Thailand and Cambodia. For the first time in, you had given faithfully and sacrificially so that we could rescue basically 40 orphan children. And so you gave and you decided to and still given so that we can watch children flourish and grow in Christ. And so our first visit in, we're going to Thailand and Cambodia to visit our kids who've just been rescued. Some of them two weeks away from the village. And, and so we're, we're, we're flying in. And, and prior to going there, we heard about these leaders in Cambodia and Thailand that, that had, had this vision for the world to reach orphan kids. One was a woman in Thailand and one was a man in Cambodia. And so I had heard about them and found out that not only were we reaching some orphans, but there were a few other orphan groups that were reaching orphans too with, with Asia's Hope. So I was really excited, obviously, about meeting the kids, and that was just incredible. But I was also excited about meeting these leaders because they had done something that had never been done before in this area. They had a passion to make it happen, and they saw it unfold. And so, in my mind, I was drawing a picture of what I was about to see. Have you ever done that? Have you heard someone's voice, and then you, you meet them in person? It's like, that's what I didn't think. I didn't think they would look like that. Have you ever done that? And it's just like, wow, I'm trying to visualize what they might look like. So, in my mind, I do that often with leaders. Wow, if they've done this with this organization, there must be something about them. So, I, I had this character of this, of this person. So, I found out in Thailand it was a woman, and I found out in Cambodia it was a man. Excited. Not only to meet the kids, but to meet these leaders. I love learning from other leaders. 
And so as we're flying over and, and we're landing in Thailand, I, I'm about to meet this woman by the name of Tutu. And, and, and so the name itself doesn't connote power, by the way. Just a picture of a Tutu. I mean, it just... But in my mind, I was thinking, this woman must be a phenomenal leader. And, and I knew she was because she had a vision 10 years ago from God to reach orphan children in the hill tribes of, of Chiang Mai. And she felt like God wanted her to do that. And she kept praying and she kept pushing and she kept pushing her faith. So we fly in the airport and we're landing in this airport. And so I'm, I'm, I can't wait to meet the kids. And we meet the kids. I was just incredible meeting these kids that you had just rescued two weeks ago from, from the village itself. And so I walk over and I'm about to meet Tutu. I'm excited. I'm looking around and I didn't see her. Where is that? And then someone says, here's Tutu. I look down. Here was this three foot six lady just, just standing there. She was five foot. Just, just, just. But there she was. You know, I was expecting that someone just that barked out orders. You do this. You do that. But here was this tender, kind, humble woman. I had a passion for the world to reach orphan people. And she greeted her, me this way. She took her hands. And in Thailand, the higher you hold them, the more respect you have for that individual. She bowed her head and said, welcome to Thailand. I was blown away. Wow, just a great woman. And, 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 and she's humble, but she's a mama. And she loves kids. And don't mess with mama who loves kids. And she spoke and the passion just oozed out of her, her vision for the world. And she told the story about for 10 years, she saw these kids and she said, I got to do something about it. And so when Tutu spoke, I just listened. And when Tutu led, I watched. And when Tutu talked to the kids, they did what she wanted them to do. In fact, one of the evenings we were there, some of the guys were supposed to take care of the boys. We got this house and the boys were upstairs in two bedrooms and they left a chore to Boyd Smith and I to put the kids down to bed at night. And so there's roughly eight boys, 10 boys upstairs. And so we're staying at this place and we figured we can put kids down. We have kids. And so we went into the room and, and you're trying to cross over this Thai language one time we were there and they're in this room and Boyd's role and I was to put these kids down, help them brush their teeth, make sure they brush their teeth, get down to sleep. And so we shut off the light and then we put these boys down and, and we walked over and they were laying there quiet and we walked over to the other side of this room, go to the other side and help these boys. And we're thinking, man, this is easy. This is a piece of cake putting these boys down. You know, just put them down, walked over here and, and prayed with these guys and we heard this noise over there. They had gotten back up on the other side. And they were in the, the, the bathroom throwing water all around. They're being boys. And it's like, boy and I looked there. So we marched back over there and trying to cross over the Thai language, you know, lay down, go to bed, okay? And they're like that and they go back down and go to the other side. They're back up, they're back up, they're back up, they're back up. And boy and I said, oh man, this isn't working. Tutu comes home. We said, Tutu, we can't get those boys to go to sleep. We can't get them to go down. And she says, I'll take care of it. She walks upstairs. Next thing I know, lights are out and there's not a sound in the house. <laughs> she's an amazing lady, by the way. She loves God. She has great faith. And she's a phenomenal leader in our world. And you know what? You won't find her on the front page of Newsweek. But you'll see her one day standing before Jesus Christ at the beam of seat. And she'll get crown after crown after crown after crown after crown. So we leave Thailand and I hear about this guy by the name of Savorn that you'll probably never meet unless you go over with us sometime. I praise God that you do. We go over to, to, to Cambodia. He has a dream to reach 1,000 orphans in, in, in Cambodia. 
So I'm picturing what Savorn looks like. We fly into Cambodia and, you know, in my mind, just this guy who's, you know, in charge and just, you know, people listen to him and he has a plan and we fly in and I meet this guy. He's five foot two. He's just tall. And, and I just like, this is awesome. And I soon found out that he had a vision for the world. He had a vision to reach orphans, a vision to care for the, 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 the needy and the underlooked in our world. And when he spoke, people listened. And I watched all these other leaders that were under him, following him, respecting him. And I watch him move and I watch and I listen. And when Savorn speaks, I listen. And every time I go to Asia, I just watch and I listen and I submit to great leadership. It's not the size of a person. It's not their stature. It's not their looks that requires someone to do uncommon things. It's the size of their heart and it's the size of their faith. I would put Tutu's faith and I would put Savorn's faith up against anybody's faith. It's just uncommon to watch them operate and lead in our world. And today we're going to see an individual that, that I would put Savorn and Tutu right beside and say, they have the kind of faith, they have the uncommon abilities that this leader does in the Bible. And, and as I've been reading this again and again and again and again and preparing for this, I'm finding that what is that undeniable, what are those unshakable qualities about an uncommon leader that causes the God above to look down and say, you know what, I'm going to move with you because you are moving with me. Grab your Bibles and I'm going to show you an uncommon leader. Turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 10. Joshua, chapter 10. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take this Bible home with you. But if you have a Bible, leave it on your seat. And if you come next week, bring your Bible. We love to dig into God's word. Joshua chapter 10. Uncommon leaders have unshakable faith. They have unshakable faith. Just, you see these leaders, they just have faith that's off the charts. They don't depend on themselves and their own abilities. They depend on God in a great way. Look at Joshua chapter 10. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Joshua 10, verses 1 through 6. Stand with me and we'll read it together. Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Let's read this together. Ready, read. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Israel, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel. And were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Param, king of Jarmoth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, Debur, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took position against Gibeon and attacked it. Verse 6. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Have a seat. We're jumping into an incredible story in the Old Testament where the Gibeonites, we're going to back up a little bit, where the Gibeonites are being attacked by five kings, five countries, five on one. 
Imagine playing a full court basketball game, five on one full court. That's the picture that's here. Gibeon wants Israel, Joshua's army, to help them. Doesn't seem like an unnecessary request, especially if you were allies with Israel. So when the five kings and the five countries come to attack, the Gibeonites cry out to Joshua and Israel and say to them, hey, don't abandon us, come help us. But let me back up a little bit here. Just prior to this, there was another incident with the Gibeonites. They are from a far country, a far, or, or, or close country to Israel. And so they're on the border of Israel. And so Israel was going to attack them and overtake them. But in Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites were fearful of the Israelites. So they devised this plan. Listen to this unbelievable plan they devised. They devised a plan. They got together and they said, if we go to the Israelites and appear like we're from this faraway country and ask for a peace treaty with them, then they'll give us one. But if they know that we're a border country and that we don't line up necessarily with them, they will attack and kill us. So let's pretend that we're from a faraway country and let's go ask them to sign this peace treaty with us. So you know what they do? They go put on old sandals. They run to their tents and put on worn out sandals. They go grab the old bread that's been a week old bread that's moldy. They put on old clothes and old tunics, and they go to the Israelites, and they say this, Israelites, we're a group from a faraway country. Can't you tell? We've been traveling for days. We've been traveling for months. Look, our shoes are worn out. When we left, the bread was fresh, and now it's stale. Joshua, when he looks at this group, the Gibeonites, thinks they are from a far country. Let's sign a peace treaty with them. We don't have to worry about them attacking us or being a, a border country. So they sign a peace treaty, an oath that they won't attack the Gibeonites. After they sign this peace treaty with Israel and Joshua, Joshua finds out, hey, they live in New Paris and he lives in Goshen. They said they were from Delaware, Ohio. And so he finds out they're a border country. But he has to keep his word. Even though they deceived him, Joshua was a man of his word. So he puts them to work. In the country that they're in, they become stonecutters, woodcutters, and they supply Israel. But they're happy about that because they know they won't die. So while they're in their country with this peace treaty with Israel, doing things for Joshua, knowing that they won't die, those five kings said, we better attack them. They got an alliance with Israel. Let's go attack them when Israel isn't there. So he sends all five kings, send their troops. They're marching there to Gilgal. They're marching to this place. And all of a sudden they cry out, Joshua, help us. So what would you do? Would you help these people who had deceived you from the past? Would you say, well, just let them go. I don't have to worry about them. They deceived us anyhow. Or would you be a man of your word, a woman of your word, and follow through with this peace treaty, even though they deceived you and did you wrong? Joshua is a man of his word. So it says this in verse seven. Look what happens next. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best, what? What's it say? Fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua before he left, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to what? What's it say? Withstand you. I always find it interesting that some, for some reason, 
Every time that there's someone sent out to, to battle, God has to remind the warriors and the army and the leader, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. In fact, it hasn't changed today. Isn't that one of the primary reasons that we don't march out, that we don't press on, that we stand in this stationary position because we're afraid? God is still reminding us, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. He tells them too, before he leaves, he says, by the way, you go there and not one of them will be able to withstand you. In other words, you will destroy everybody and nobody on your side will die. So Joshua gets this promise from God before he left that he would be victorious. So before he leaves, it's late evening and God speaks to him and reminds him of some truths and the way jo- what Joshua does, he just chooses to believe him. You see, his faith bank was full of plenty of other deposits. Let me describe that for a second. So often in our lives, we make our decisions based upon what we have in our physical banks. We make decisions. Sure, I'll buy that. Sure, I'll go to that school. Sure, I'll, I'll, I, I'll be able to go on that vacation. Sure, I'll be able to do that. Because we make decisions based upon what's in our money banks. And it's easy to make decisions when you know that's there. But Joshua is about to make a decision from a bank. It's called his faith bank. Faith bank says, well, I've put deposits. God has put deposits from the past And inside of this faith bank, all these experiences that we have from the past, we have this arsenal, this this tank, this bank of experiences. God came through here. God came through there. And so if we're able to, and we should, whenever decisions come, we should not just look at our money banks. We should look at our faith banks. Wow, when I came to that crossroad before and we asked God to do that, he did this. And so one of the things I think it's important to do for you and for us is to often just go back and look at the journey of our lives and to see where God came through and to remind ourselves, wow, remember that time when we were asking God for that? And so one of the things that I do, I keep little trinkets. I look at photo albums. I go back and read old blogs. I go back and remember what God had done because those are faith deposits. And so what I do, I go back and I reread them. I go back and I revisit them. I go back and say, wow, look what God did there. Imagine what he can do today. And so when it comes to making decisions, we can't only make them with the money bank. We have to make them with the faith bank. But here's the problem. How many deposits have you put in your faith bank recently? Seriously, when's the last time you just stepped out in faith and said, God, I want you to do this. God, I want you to do that. God, please do this. God, I believe this is going to happen. And you trusted God, faith deposit. Joshua has a huge faith deposit bank. He's put plenty of deposits. He's the guy that stood around the walls of Jericho and marched around seven times and people hit some jars together and and they, they played some trumpets and they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. So now he faces this situation. His decision won't be based upon money or security. It's based upon faith. And so he goes back and says, well, if God did that at Jericho, there's that deposit in my faith bank then surely he can do this. So there's no doubt in my mind when he saw this situation, God said, hey, no one will be able to stand you. He did it back in Jericho. He did it back in Ai. He did it back here. And the other thing that Joshua did that I love is you run through the Old Testament. It's one of the things I try to do. I do it differently than he did. But all through the Old Testament, he would go and build a memorial. 
He would go and place these rocks. He would go and, and put these there. And you know why he did that? Because the next time he went out to battle, when he bypassed that memorial where he over went, overcame this army, you know why he did that? It was a reminder. Look at that faith deposit that God made. And so when he walked by there, his bank was full. It was a reminder. I don't want to forget that. If God did that, if God did that, if God did that, if God did that, then he can do this. But here's the problem. How many of you are putting deposits in your faith bank? How many of you are only relying on this? And this big issue comes and said, well, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough this. I don't have enough that. And you have nothing to go back on because you haven't stepped out in faith and asked God to provide. Joshua is, do, is a man who does this. He's got unshakable faith. You see, his faith bank was full. We have a written account, by the way. And you say, I wish I had something in my faith bank. I wish I had deposits. And I say, hey, just drop your Bible in there. There's 66 books loaded with stuff. There's like stories on every page. If you need a good dose of faith, go back and reread it. And it's like, wow, God did that and God did this. And guess what? The same God that did that can do that for you. You must put deposits in the bank. Because if you don't put deposits in the bank, then when it comes time to make a faith step, you have nothing to draw from. And so your decision is based upon this. And when it's based upon that, you're placing your decision-making ability on you and not on God necessarily. So Joshua finds himself here. Uncommon leaders believe God for the impossible. Their faith is unwavering. It begins in the small stuff. So how do you make faith deposits? Let me give you uh, some small examples. And you have these too. But th- this, is, this is part of my, our story. 20 years ago or so, 24 years, 22 years ago, 21 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, uh, we, we, we knew that God had a call in our life to, to, to pursue ministry. And so we were living in Hagerstown, Maryland. And I was running a teen center in Hagerstown, Maryland on Saturday nights. And it was just kids off the street would come in and kids were getting saved. It was an incredible ministry. And I remember I felt like God was calling us to ministry and Ann did too. And I felt this call in my life to be a pastor. I was serving as a lay person, a youth worker, a pastor in a church. And I was working in construction, had a great job. I was a trim carpenter and I was a foreman and loved what I was doing. I was working for the best builder in Hagerstown, Maryland, building at that time, $500,000 home, double winder staircases and six peaks crown mold and house. And I loved it. And I was involved in leading and being part of that and just loved it. I had a great job. And, and Josh was nine months old, my son. And, but we felt the call of God on our life for ministry. And so during that time, we felt like that's what God wanted us to do. And so we knew he wanted us to do that. But it would require faith to leave this, this ministry that we were in. And I remember this, this thought occurred to me one night. I was thinking, who's going to care for all those kids? Because there were kids that were hooked on drugs, and there were kids that were getting saved, and there were kids that were, 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 were pregnant and unwed. And, and it was just, it, it was a time in my life that I just passionately enjoyed just pouring into children and, and to teens. And I remember one night I was praying, I was like, it's like, I, I, it's like as God spoke in that room, he says, Jim, you think I can't take care of them? You think that only you can do that? And I remember thinking, Jim, you're not the Messiah, he's the Messiah. And so I left. And I'm not saying that was easy, by the way. I, when I left there and all the kids, we said goodbye. It was, it was hard because I saw many of those kids come to know Christ. And I saw a lot of them get off drugs. And, and I invested four years of my life in those teens. And, and I, when I left, there wasn't a leader that had surfaced. And I was broken over that. But God told me, Jim, I want you to go. 
And so we decided to go to Grace College. And, and, and so we get to Grace College. In our money bank was five weeks, five weeks of income that would last for five weeks. I remember driving there and, and, and we moved from a four bedroom house in the, in, in the country to a two bedroom up, upstairs apartment. And seriously, we took half the rider truck that we had and gave it away to Goodwill because there wasn't room. And I remember the first night we're sleeping between boxes and Anne's crying and I'm crying. And we're thinking, man, what did we just do? <laughs> just, it was just one of those nights. I mean, it was, we were supposed to have someone there unpack the truck for us and they didn't show up and we're walking up these steps. Josh is nine months old and I'm trying to carry stuff. Anne's trying to carry stuff. I was like, boy, this plan really came together. Good God. It's just... <laughs> And so I remembered desires. We had a desire. I wanted to get a job that would allow me not to work at night because I wanted to be home for my son and my wife. I wanted to get a job that would allow me to go to school full time and work around my schedule. I wanted the God to provide and, and I didn't want to work at nighttime. And, and I was hoping that, praying that God would give me insurance and that, and make a long story short. We got to the fourth week, third day, second day of the fourth, of the, of the fourth week and we're running out of money. I don't have a job. I'm in school. But we knew God wanted us to do that. I mean, we just we saw where he came through in the past. We knew this is what he wanted to do. And, and all of a sudden, the, the, the depletion, we didn't make a decision based on that, but this was draining. I ran across the guy that my freshman year in college I had played basketball with. And he heard that I was in town and he had a construction company. And word got to him, to me, and he says, hey, Jim, are you looking for a job? I said, yeah. He said, by the way, what, what have you done these last five years? I was a carpenter. He says, I own a construction company. He says, you know what? I want to give you a job. And so I went over and worked for him and they had me hanging doors and hanging some trim just to see if I was a carpenter. And, and boy, you know, you, you have to perform. It's like, go hang these doors, go, go trim this house out. And so I got finished trimming out this house. And he said, I want to give you a job. And he said, no, I don't want to give you a job, but you need a vehicle. So I'm going to give you a Ford F-150 truck. And he said, no, I don't want to give you a Ford F-150 truck. He said, but I want to pay your health insurance. I know you have a son. And he said, no, I don't have health insurance. I'd like to give you some life insurance. And he said, and I want to let you know, he says, you work whenever you're able to. You go to school and work around. I don't care when you work. I remember, I couldn't wait to get home until Ann. <laughs> because we, have been, we believed that this is what God wanted us to do. And this is the step he wanted us to take. And, and so we took that step. And it's like, God said, you know what? You believed it. In faith, you stepped out. And bam, there it was. So we get to the end of this. Prior to that, I still had some school loans when I was coming into, into Grace Seminary there. And so, and, and, and so I was working around a job, trying to go to school full time. So obviously I couldn't put a whole bunch of hours in. And so we came to the end of this journey and graduated from seminary. And by the way, that was a, one of the greatest days of my life. I was just like, man, there's a picture. Anne has a picture of me. I'm like, yeah. And so I walk across stage and we get done. And our next step was that there was a connection that it would, Anne and I would move anywhere in America. We, we, seriously, we were open to East Coast. Where I'm from. We were open to California. We'd go to any church in America. We just got wherever you want us to go. And Mike Yoder, who knew about Grace here, and he said, you know, there's a church up in Goshen. So I went up to visit and met some of the dear, sweetest people I've ever met. And make a long story short, I found myself in Goshen, Indiana. Moving here, we wanted to find a home. And so we wanted to purchase a home. And so um, when we graduated from seminary, we didn't have any money in the bank <laughs> And so our income was based upon what we had made the last two years. So we went to a bank in Warsaw, Indiana, and I said, we'd like to purchase this house in, 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 on Tarman Road for $84,000. And so she said, can I see your W-2s from the last year? I said, yes, ma'am. So I pulled out 1995 and 1994, and I handed them to her, and she looked at them, and, and she says, thank you. She says, can I see the rest of your income? I said, ma'am, that's it. <laughs> we had made 13000 in 94. We had made 17000 in 95. And, and, and she, she wanted to say, she said, 
so you don't have any other income? Um, I said, no, ma'am. She says, you don't have any credit card debt? She says, you don't have any loans from college? I said, no, ma'am. God paid that off while we went through seminary. She says, you don't have any graduate school, three years, 90-degree credit? No, ma'am. Uh, God provided. Um, she says, you didn't charge anything and run it up? No, ma'am. We didn't believe that we should charge stuff up. We just trusted God. She looked at me across this table because, you know, the income, it didn't, by the way, the numbers didn't compute. We weren't eligible for a loan. <laughs> and she looked at us and she said this. I'll never forget this. She said, if your God did that for you with that, then surely he can do this for you with that. Here's a loan. You know, I'll never forget that. And I don't say, I give credit to God for that. But the reason I tell you that is, that's a faith deposit. Was it hard? You bet it was. Were there, were there months when it was difficult? You bet it was. Were there times that we wish we had more cash? You bet there was. Were there times with 15 truckloads of wood that I was cutting and burning to keep my house warm? Did they get long? Were there nights when I was studying Hebrew and Greek and hardly got any sleep? You bet there was. But was it worth it? Yes, it was. And did God provide? You bet he did. And so Joshua is finding himself in the same kind of place. Looking back where God has already provided, already been faith deposited. And he said, if God did that with Jericho, then what do I have to worry about? And what happens next is incredible. But Hebrews eleven six says it this way though. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You see, it's easy to please God when you got a bank account. God, I got a job. God, I got money. God, I got this. God, you're good. What happens when all this goes away? What do you have left? You got to go back to your faith bank and believe that God is going to provide for you. And the word of God says, it's impossible to please God without faith. Let me ask you a question. How often has God been pleased with you over the last six months? Are you just out there and you're just enjoying life? And man, you got your job, you got this, you got that, you got your cute little family, you got your possessions, you got this and that, and you're just loving this. And there hasn't been a step of faith at all. Listen, that means that all those things that you accomplished, there wasn't faith, God isn't pleased. Faith produces courage in a leader. It prods them to do the unthinkable. It fuels them to press on regardless of criticism and adversity. What is the last outrageous step of faith that you've taken and put in your faith bank? Fast forward. We have a son that's in college, same college that Anna and I went to, Grace College. He's a sophomore. He's here today in this service with some other friends that play baseball at Grace. They travel up, and I'm glad that they do. I have a daughter that's a senior right now. She wants to go to college. Her heart's desire is on Grace College. It's expensive. Parents know that. So we're looking at that and saying, man, we don't have this kind of money. I don't, we don't have enough money for Hannah. There's not enough scholarship. And here's the deal. She believed God wants her to go there and she wants to be part of it. And you know what? The same God that provided for Jim and Ann Brown when we had nothing and when we got to the end is the same God that can provide for Hannah Brown if that's what she wants to do and God believe, and she believed God wants her to do that. So for us to say there's not money, when God is saying, that's what you, I want you to do, would we be robbing God of an opportunity to provide? You bet we would. Look what happens. They call out to Joshua in verse 9. So he comes. It says, after an all-night march around from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. He traveled at the night. 
Verse 10, the Lord threw them in confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makata. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled what? what? What did he throw? Large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from the what? Hailstones that were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Every time I read this passage, I say, dude, that's awesome. Think about it. God saw the faith of Joshua. He said, you go, do not be afraid. Joshua didn't know that God had a supply of hailstones. He didn't tell him, hey, when you get on this road, guess what I'm going to do? He didn't say that. He believed that God would provide. He stepped out. Can you imagine? With our, uh, you know, this, this don't over-spiritualize Joshua. Sometimes we do that with, with the characters in the Bible. Was there ever a time where he just stood back and said, God, here's one. God, how about here? God, how about here? I mean, boom, boom. I mean, imagine you're marching. They're running. God intervened because of a man's faith in him and he saw uncommon victory because he believed that God could do what he did in the past. He would do it now and he watched something unbelievable. When's the last time you had God throw hailstones for you? What a sight that must have been. The Bible is loaded with these kind of encounters where God supernaturally shows up and he reveals himself because of a person's faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Some of you are making plans right now. You're thinking, if I get enough education, if I get enough this, and I get enough that, if I do enough this, and you're just marching down this road, running down this path, adding to your numbers, adding to your labels, adding to your degrees, adding to this, and all the while you haven't asked God, is that what you want me to do? Let me ask you something. Are the steps you're taking requiring great faith? If they're not, God's not pleased with it. But if you are, watch out. Stop and consider that nothing you'll ever do in this lifetime unless there's faith will please God. Uncommon leaders taste the miraculous. They expect nothing less than for God to show up big time and he does. It's easy to make plans when everything's going okay. It's easy to make plans when the bank deposits are good. I wonder if Joshua joined in in a fresh way and was just knocking off these, these enemies one by one. I wonder if his faith was just, was just breaming. I wonder if he said, God, you outdid yourself on this one. That's awesome, God. I mean, remember, he saw the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. This man experienced uncommon things. He was just an uncommon leader. I also know this. Uncommon leaders run with a reckless abandon. When God gives them the green light, they're gone. It's like, wait a minute, let me catch up to you. It's just like, and then there's a verse in Isaiah 30, 21 says, even if I turn to my right or my left, there will be, my ears will hear a voice behind me saying, this is the way, walk in it. And there's this sense where uncommon leaders who are walking in faith, they're just moving because they know that's the path God wants them. You don't find very stationary faith men of God. They are moving, they are attacking, they are advancing because God is pushing them. And when they run, their battery is charged. Think through that for a second. 
when a faith-filled man or a faith-filled woman runs, that's when their batteries charge. Let me simplify this, by the way. We won't get real technical about this. Your vehicles have a battery in it. In it. In order for your battery to be charged, in order for it to be charged, your vehicle has to be running. If you just use your battery without starting your vehicle and getting your alternator to run, it won't charge your battery. So if it's in a stationary, sedentary position for a long time and you just have your key on, eventually your battery will drain. Your battery will be depleted. But as soon as you start running your vehicle, your battery is charged. It's the same way with Christians. The way our faith is charged is if we're running towards God. We're running with God. If you stay in a, a, a stationary position, your battery will drain. Then you have these people in your life. Negative, faithless people. I call them powerless people who want to suck your battery dry. And if you let them, they can. And so here's what they do. They walk into your life. They see this battery source that's in your life. You know what they want to do? They want to suck you dry. And you see them, it's like, and if you don't start running with God, and if you just stay there, they're going to tap into you and suck you dry. Listen to me. Don't let faithless, negative, people who don't want to run with God tell you, well, that could never be done. That's never been done before. Well, the last time someone tried that, they shot their eye out. <laughs> Listen to me. There are people all over our world. This is how they operate. Oh, let me suck you dry. Listen, the only way that your battery stays charged is if your vehicle is running to God. And if you pause long enough and you stay and you say, I'm afraid, and you live in that fearful position, your battery will die. Let me ask you a question. Are you running? Or is your battery being depleted because of your stationary position in life or because you're letting the voices of someone else suck you dry? Joshua wouldn't have anything to do with that. He says, I'm out of here, man. We're taking the hill. We're coming from Gilgal. He left at night and in the middle of the morning, he continues attack. And so regardless of what the people were saying, he was doing what God had promised. God said, I'm giving you that hill. And then he does something that's unbelievable. He speaks the unthinkable. Look at Joshua chapter 10. Look at verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua, what? What's the next word? Said. It doesn't say he prayed. It says Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Oh, what? What's the word? Son, stand what? Yeah, that's not a bad request. I mean, when's the last time you stood out and said, man, it's been such a good day, God. Can we like 12 more hours of sunlight? Just stop, son. Would you right there? When's the last time you've been on vacation and you've been along the shoreline? It's like, man, it's a great beach day and you've been swimming and you're just like, man, I want to stay on vacation. You stop and say, okay, God, stop the sun right here. He doesn't stop there. And then he says this. He says, oh, moon over the valley of Agilon, stand still. He speaks something that's unthinkable. Most of them would have called it the day by now. Most leaders would have said, man, I've been up all night. We traveled all night. We fought all day. Man, and, and we're destroying people. But listen, Joshua wasn't that kind of leader. 
There was still some fight left in him. And he remembered the promise before he left. Not one of them will withstand against you. And he realized that some of them had fled. And he says, God, we got to get to them before. He wasn't, he was, he was saying, my work's not finished here. This wasn't supposed to end this way. You promised me that no one will withstand God. And that the only way that can happen is if you extend the day so that we can hunt them down in the light. In fact, Mark chapter 11 and verse 23 says it this way. Please turn there. Keep your finger here and turn to Mark chapter 11 and verse 23. Please, please turn there. Matthew, Mark 11, verse 23. Mark 11 and verse 23 says it this way. By the way, these are Jesus' words. This isn't some spooky right person that loves Jesus that always speaks real spooky that we always say, well, they're, they're spooky. This is Jesus Christ saying this. He says this, Mark eleven twenty three. I tell you the what? What's it? What do you say? Truth, okay. This is truth. If anyone, not some, if anyone, what's the next word? Says, not praise, says to this mountain. Go throw yourself into the sea and does not what? Doubt in his heart, but what? Believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Way before Mark chapter eleven twenty three, Joshua looked at the sun and said, Son, stand still. Son, stand still because I believe in my heart that my God can make the sun stand still. I got to ask this question. Where did he get that idea from? wasn't like, 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 like some other guy like tried it like three days earlier. Seriously, where does a man like that even conjure up ideas like that? Did he just wake up and say, let me think about like 10 things I can think about. I'll ask God today. No, it was in the moment and he realized we need more light. And so he just went out there and said, Hey, this is the God I serve. I got all these faith deposits. I'm banking on those. Sun stand still. Think about that for a second. He speaks it out loud. We often hear that prayer changes things. That's not entirely true. Prayer changes us. Faith changes things. God didn't say pray over that mountain. He said have faith in your God and believe in your heart and not doubt. And then verbally speak to that mountain and it would find itself into the sea. Joshua says, sun, stand still. Moon, quit moving. Earth, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Just quit rotating on your axis. It's easy for us to think or pray inwardly about something because if nothing happens, then we don't look stupid. You know what I mean? It's like, boy, God, I really hope you do that. And so we pray, please, God, do that. And please, God, I, I think you're capable. And please, God, do that. But the minute you speak it out loud, like Josh, you put your neck out there and people say, did you hear that stupid thing he said? The minute you put your neck out on the line and you're begging God and you're asking God and you're declaring before God, you can look really stupid. Let me tell you something. The, the things, the people that see God move in a great way are the people who are willing to look stupid and they say, God, show up and show off. And you know what? God loves showing off. He asked for the unthinkable. So the Bible says the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nations avenge itself on its enemies. 
as it's written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. And then it says this in verse 14. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Can I ask you a personal question? What makes you think that God still doesn't have those kind of capabilities? Did he just kind of like put them on the shelf and said, oh, it's been a long time. Just, I'm just the God of the Old Testament. I'm not the God of the New Testament in the church age. What makes you think that he doesn't want to do great things for us? What makes you think that God isn't capable? You know what makes you think that? A lack of faith. What has God done in your life, in your business, in your ministry, in your home that's so big that you can't describe it and explain it other than just God showed off? He was not afraid to look stupid. He didn't pray in quiet of his own heart. And that way, if it doesn't come to, to fruition, you don't look stupid. Listen to me. God wants you to look stupid and me look stupid so he can show off. Who in this room is willing to ask God for the unthinkable? I'll tell you where, who it is. It's the people leaving, di- leading dynamic lives where they're seeing God move in un- unthinkable, unimaginable ways. Doubt dries up your faith tank. Verse 14 says, there's never been a day like this before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a man. Why not, church? Why can't God do that for us? Why? Other than you don't believe. Maybe other than you doubt. And maybe just God doesn't want to. But are you asking? I want some of that Grace Community Church. I want it for you, but I can't do it for you. Experience what most will never do. Then it says this in verse 15. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp of Gilgal. Can you imagine that debriefing after that battle, after they sat down, look around and saying, what the heck just happened? (laughs) Did you see those hailstones? Did the sun really stop? Did the moon, dude, what just happened? Because the word of God says in the rest of the verses that they pursued him, they killed him. There were kings in the cave that were hiding, all five of them. And it says that Joshua put his foot on their necks and he killed them. And then he took five stones. You know what he did? He took five stones for the five kings of these five countries. And he said, take those five stones and put them in front of the cave. Put them in the faith deposit bag. That way, when we come by here again and God calls us out for another battle, we can look at that hill and we can say, remember the time that God made the sun stand still and these five kings, and you know why he did that? So the next time something big came up, he took a deposit, put a, had already put a deposit in the bank and he's withdrawing from his faith bank. Ask yourself this question. Is your faith bank full? So yesterday we're coming back from a weekend away with elders and pastors and wives, talking about Grace Community, reflecting over the year, and having some equipping. It was a great, great time. And I've been telling you about this man by the name of Andy that if God would somehow move in his heart, that an opportunity with what he has could just give us incredible opportunity ministry-wide that like we've never seen before. And so... On the way home, I was, this is fresh on my heart and fresh on my mind. And so my wife and I were together and we rode by 
Andes. Pull my Jeep up. Pulled out my camera. Snapped some pictures. And I said this, God, this is Grace Communities. This can be used for you. This place can be redeemed so that lives can be transformed. This place needs people on it who need Jesus Christ. And even though it looks like that's not happening right now, this is your property. God, make the sun stand still for Grace Community. So when I left there, drove away, man, was that fun? I spoke it out loud and my wife agreed with me and we declared it before God. We're not being presumptuous and saying, God, you need to do this. But I'll tell you what, we will not find ourselves not getting that because your pastor refused to believe that God could do it and asking for it. Let me ask you a question. What kind of deposits are you making in your faith bank? What kind of uncommon things is God doing through you? This could be the year. I believe this, that one day when we get to heaven and praise God that we will, who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that somehow or another, God will come up to us and he'll take us to this room, this place in heaven. And there'll just be this area and, 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 and on the door of this area, there'll just be this lock. Just, and look at it and God will walk over and he'll open up this lock and pull it off and, and we'll walk into this, this room. And, 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 and we walk down this room and just, wow, look, what, look at that. Look what God did there. Wow, look what God did there. Wow, look what God did. Wow, God, you did that. Wow. Wow, God, you healed that marriage. Wow, God, you healed that business. Wow, God, you provided that. Wow, God, you answered that. Wow, God, you were able to make that. Wow, God. And he's going to say, no, I didn't. But I wanted to. <laughs> but you never asked me. He said, you remember a long time ago when I gave my life for you and you believed in that message and, um, and you gave your life to me and, and, and there was a point of salvation where you were born again. On that day, I gave you a key to your heart called faith. You had access to that room. Yet through your whole life, you chose not to use it. Grace, listen to me today. When you pray, pray with faith. When you pray, you don't pray with doubt. When you pray, you believe in your heart that your God can do it. And he knows when you pray, when you don't believe that. But when you do, you can just stand and say, God, this is what I believe to be true. So in closing this morning, I'm in my front room. I know my daughter loves Grace College and the fee is large. I stood up in my room and said, God, my daughter, she wants to go to Grace College. God, I don't know how we can afford it, but I declare that Hannah Brown will be a student at Grace College by the glory of God. Lord, give us faith. Give us faith that moves mountains. Give us faith that makes us start running and charging our batteries. Give us faith that speaks the unthinkable. Give us faith that allows you to just show off your power and your glory. 
You are good, God. Let us allow you to work in unthinkable ways. And may the sun stand still in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.